And it says, and God created man. God said, let us create man in our image. Now, this is important because uh, the word image, a lot of times when we think image, we, 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 we get a picture, we get an a, a, a image. The, the word image carries this idea. God said when he said, uh, you shall have no other gods before you, no other images. All right, image. The word, the word image very often in the Bible refers to a statue. It refers to a, a, uh, a false god. But here the word image is more of a resemblance. So the Bible says that God said, let us create man to resemble us. Or to resemble me. All right. And then he says, and after our likeness. After our likeness. The word likeness is a, a model or a shape. So, in other words, God says, let's make man a model of us. Now, don't miss this. Because very often we think about that and we think, right, authority, dominion, uh, exercising authority, exercising dominion. But think about this. The Bible says, and we'll get more into this in a minute, in a, in a few minutes probably, not just a minute. But the point is, he says that Everything that was done in the new creation through redemption was simply a restoration of what happened in Genesis chapter 1. All right? So not only was man created with, with authority and dominion and the ability to lord over the earth as God's under ruler, he was created in God's likeness and God's image so that he could be near God. So there could be communion. So there could be fellowship. So there could be oneness between God and man. Everything else that God created, he created for the enjoyment of the person that was like him. Hallelujah. So God created every, if you read all the way through this, it says right here at, at the end of uh, chapter 1. When you, re you read all the way through this, it says where God created uh, the different animals. It says he created them after their kind. Verse 24, the cattle, the creeping things, the beast of the earth. So God created every species of animal after their kind. But when God created man, he created him on an entirely different level. Amen. He created man after his likeness. And after his image. His, his likeness, remember, his, he resembled God. His image, he resembled God. His likeness, he was a model of God. It's important because God created man in this fashion to be near him, to be near him, so man could be near to him. Man's not simply a higher animal life form. 
You'll hear people say, they'll say, well, you know, of all the animals that are on the earth, man's the highest in intellect. Well, you're, we're not an animal. I know there are people that act that way, but, but, but we're, not, we're not animals. An- animals never had a nearness with God. There were things that were created for the pleasure of God and things that were created for God. The Bible says, for His pleasure, all things are created. God created man and received pleasure out of nearness with man. Hallelujah. And then, man was created to be near God, to be in His presence. In His presence. Now, we don't know how long the fall was after man was created. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was a thousand years, a million years, or one day. It doesn't matter. But here's the point that I want you to see with this. Very often, the focus in Genesis is original sin. Original sin. Well, this is where the original sin came, and this is when this happened. But understand something. Man, though, was created with original righteousness. Now here's, here's I'm, I'm taking the long way around to get to this. If man was created in the image and the likeness of God, man was created perfectly righteous. Amen. Perfectly holy. Perfectly upright. Because all of those things are in God. God is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. So very often people will focus on original sin. If you're going to live victoriously, you've got to focus on the original righteousness. That where I was brought back to was this stage, this state of nearness to God. Religion has helped us immensely miss this. It has taken thousands of years of religion to mess us up. We're going to bombard the gates of hell. We're going to keep bombarding heaven until finally we get an answer. The only people that bombard are people that do not have the right of nearness. Over and over again in Scripture, we're told, come boldly. Let us approach by a new and living way. The blood opened heaven. The Bible says the blood opened, opened the grave and opened heaven. I have a right, now, now understand, when I say a right, I have a right to be near to God because of what I have accepted and put my faith in. I've put my faith in the blood of Jesus, I've accepted it, I have a right to be near Him. Amen. The sinner has no right to be near to God. They have no right because they've not been cleansed from their sin. They are still operating in original sin, whereas you and I are operating in original righteousness. It's not a new righteousness. It's the same righteousness that man was created with. Everything that Jesus did on the cross, everything that He did in His death, burial, and resurrection was to bring us back to the state of original righteousness. 
Hallelujah. So if we were created in God's image, we were created perfectly righteous. And so the enemy will fight things like that. I'm not necessarily preaching on righteousness, but it's here. He will fight righteousness, not by telling you it doesn't exist, because that would be a blatant disregard for the word, but by telling you that there's something you have to do to measure up. There's something that you have to do to be righteous. Well, there is something that you have to do to be righteous. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. Righteousness is the only thing in the word that we are told cannot increase. The Bible says we grow in our knowledge of righteousness. You're as righteous as you're ever going to be. Because you were created that way. You were created holy. Oh, Pastor, all I've done, you wouldn't say I'm holy. See, holiness is not conduct. Holiness is you being set apart. As you, as you operate in sanctification, your holiness grows because you're putting to death the works of the flesh. You're putting to death, to death the deeds of the old man. Sanctification and holiness are two different things. Holiness is being set apart for God's purpose. When did that happen? When you got born again. When were you made righteous? When you got born again. Sanctification is the walking out of my righteousness and my holiness. I'm consecrating. I'm sanctifying my life. Amen. Amen. But you're already righteous. You're already holy. Well, I just wish I saw more of it. You got to believe it more. Amen. I'm helping you. God created man in his image for the purpose of nearness. Understand something. God was not lonely. God is incapable of being lonely. Why? He's all in all. (laughs) Hear, Hear me when I say this. I mean this nice. God doesn't need you. You need him. He did not create man to fill a void. Because if God had a void, he could not be perfect. If God needs anybody, he cannot be perfect. And he is perfect. God created you for fellowship. Amen. I mean, God wasn't sitting on the throne and said, you know what, I'd really like some kids around here. Somebody did. He created mankind for fellowship. So man could be near to him. Do do you see this? Because if God had a need of anything, he wouldn't be God. So everything he did was for us. Oh, hallelujah. And he said everything he made was very good. But only man was created for nearness. Only man was created for nearness. In Genesis 3, verse 
6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired, she took of the fruit thereof, did eat, gave it to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now notice what it says. Of course, we, we, we look here and we see the original sin, which was what? People say, well, it was the fruit. Well, it wasn't the pear on the tree. It was the pear on the ground. Right? Here's the point. The original sin was not eating the fruit. The original sin was disobedience. And so they disobeyed God and they ate of the fruit. But notice, it says that something happened when they ate of that fruit. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. This is important because they saw themselves different. What came in right here? Shame. Immediately, shame came in. Now, there are people you know and I know, they're ashamed. They're, they're ashamed of the way their life is. These are believers. They're, they're ashamed of the way their life is. They're ashamed of where they're at. They're ashamed of how they look, what they weigh, uh, uh, what's going on in their life. And, and they're ashamed. And they try to hide it or deal with it or justify it or whatever. You, you can't deal with shame that way. You can't hide it or justify it. You've got to get rid of it. Now, now, how do I know that they were seeing things differently? Because when you read Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, it says that God created the man and the woman and that they were both naked and not ashamed. So what changed? The way they saw things changed. They saw themselves different. Why? Because they were now looking through the cloak and the, and the veil of disobedience. And whenever you see yourself as disobedient and you see yourself as someone that can't please God and you see yourself as somebody that's a failure, you'll always see yourself in shame and you'll always draw away from God instead of drawing near to God. Amen. Hallelujah. That's why when you're raising your kids, you never shame them. You never shame them. Hallelujah. I, I hear parents say, for shame on you. What? Why would you ever do that? You might as well double up your fist and hit your kid in the face. Because you're teaching them to hide because I'm ashamed. Amen. If I'm going to raise my child in the nurture and the admonition of God, I've got to do it without shame. Well, what if they do something wrong? They need to be ashamed. They never need to be ashamed. They need to be repentant. Not ashamed. When you get a child over into shame, they start hiding things from you. Why? They're ashamed. And we help them. 
When a child does something wrong, don't you ever let me catch you doing that again. So they just do it where you can't see it. Because they're ashamed. Amen. Instead of sitting down, God had a dialogue with his man. He had a dialogue with his man. And he never shamed his man. He never shamed Eve and he never shamed Adam. We're going to read it in just a moment. He had a dialogue with him. If you take that over into the natural realm, when a child does something wrong, are there consequences? Probably, but not before dialogue. Not before talking. Not before finding out what's going on. Amen. Any madman can burst in the bedroom with a belt and wear him out. What about dialogue? There are people sitting in here, your parents never talked to you before they disciplined you. Ever. They never did. And so consequently, very often, I was not aware of what was going on. Oh, you know what you did. Well, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but it bred rebellion. It told me I can't trust my parent with something I'm struggling with. That's sin. That's sin. Don't you do that again. That's sin. Well, it might be. But how do I overcome it? And so you got a child struggling with sin and they're ashamed because their parent points the finger and crams the Bible down their throat instead of setting them down saying, how can we work this out? And so then you have shamed people having shamed kids and then they have shamed grandkids and now you got a culture of shame. And mom's hiding this from dad and dad's hiding this from mom and the kids are hiding everything from everybody. And then somebody will have the audacity to say, why didn't you just come and talk to me? Because you told me I was sinning and that I ought to be ashamed of myself and that I ought to... Brother Hagin said even an old sow quit coming to the trough if you hit her in the head every time she comes up there. Think about it. Well, why, why is this important? Because, because everything that God created man for was nearness. As a parent, I should be the conduit of nearness to God for my children. They should see in me these qualities. Hallelujah. So how do I do that? No shame. Yeah, but they knew what they was doing was wrong. Right? And you did too. We all knew what we were doing was wrong. Adam and Eve knew what they were doing was wrong. And notice, notice it says that they saw that they were naked. The shame was not nakedness. There wasn't anything wrong with being naked. Now don't take that too far. We, we, we have stores for a reason. 
But, but, but this was not, the, the shame was not being unclothed. That's how God created them. They were in an environment of no shame. They were in an environment of no lust. They were in an environment of, of, of no sin. And when you take sin and shame out of the equation, the, the things that cause sin and shame don't exist. Are you following me? And so they begin to see themselves different. Every child, Lord, I don't know why I'm here. Every child that's born into this earth is born innocent. They have to be taught to be ashamed. They have to learn how to sin. Amen. And if you sit a child down and tell them the recompense of sin, not just hell, you sit down and you tell them the recompense of sin. That the Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, honey, darling, sweetheart, at some point you will reap a harvest of the death of something in your life if you choose to go down that way. And it's not shame, it's not guilt, that's what the Word of God says. But when you say things like, i tell you what, I'd be ashamed of myself if I was you. They, they will be. And they'll just hide it from you. Because of shame. What, what did Adam and Eve do? Watch. Read the Bible. What did they do? They saw they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves. They, they hid. They sewed fig leaves to cover up themselves from each other. And then they hid from God. So when I teach my child to be ashamed of what they did where I'm concerned and hide it from me, I'm teaching them to hide things from God. Amen. Well, you need to own up to it. They will own up to it if you approach it correctly. Amen. I remember one time one of my kids came in. They were just little. And the, am I helping anybody with this? And, and they were down the, the, the road playing with one of their friends. And uh, she was only five, I guess, maybe, maybe five, six. And uh, came in and kind of sat down. You know, like a kid, she had learned something new and she wanted to share it. And she sat down and went, well, beep, and just cursed. People say, what'd you do? I said, hmm, where'd you learn that word? She said, oh, my friend said it. I said, okay, let's talk about that. (laughs) You know, I never told her she'd go to hell for saying that. Never told her she ought to be ashamed of herself. I explained what the word meant. And she went, ooh. Yeah, exactly. That's why you don't want to say that. Right? Now, I'm not saying I'm the perfect parent holding myself up as, as the example. But what I'm saying is I learned early on that my original purpose was to be near to God. And shame destroyed that. Amen. Notice, at this point, man became a different being, a falling being. And man who had no shame and did not feel the need to be clothed. There are people that say he was clothed with the glory of God. That may absolutely be true. The scripture doesn't tell us that. It may be true. I'm not saying it's wrong. But what I'm saying is, irregardless, 
They, were, they did not have shame in their mind. So when they looked at each other, they did not see anything to be ashamed of. Because they were created in the likeness and the image of God. And there is no shame in God. God will never shame you. If you get a hold of the love of God, you will never feel ashamed. You will feel forgiven. You will feel righteous. You will feel justified. Why? Because that's what God does. God doesn't shame you and then forgive you. God forgives you and wipes away your shame. Hallelujah. How, how do I know that? Because there was a woman caught in the very act of adultery that was being shamed publicly by the religious leaders. They brought her, having caught her in the very act of adultery, and they threw her down at the feet of Jesus. Nothing more shameful. Right? And said, Moses in the law says this woman should be stoned. Moses in the law did say that. But look what our high priest said. He that's without sin cast the first stone. He that's without sin, something that you don't need to be ashamed of, attack her for what she's ashamed of. They all walked away. And, and, and he went and picked the woman up and said, where are your accusers? There are none, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Hallelujah. What did he do first of all? I forgive you. Go and sin no more. In that word, I don't condemn you. I don't shame you. I don't hold guilt over your head. In that phrase was enough forgiving power that that woman went her way and sinned no more. Amen. Do you see that? When your child misses it, when somebody close to you misses it, the best thing you can say in the very beginning is, Honey, I forgive you for the action that you took. Now let's talk about fixing it. Amen. Why? Because you've already settled it. I love you. I forgive you. I don't have any shame for you. Hallelujah. I just, I just believe they need to learn a lesson. They will. They will learn. They will learn how much you love them. They will learn how much you care about them. They will learn the victory. And I'm not against whooping a child. But you forgive first. Because they are whooping offenses. Amen. When a child lies to you, why did they lie to you? They were ashamed. Of what? Of what? What they did. And the best way out of it was lie. That's what they did. Blame game. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? What's the opportunity right there? Yes, sir. Yes, we did. We did it. We did it. Right? Remember what they said, though? And this can be humorous, but remember what they said? Uh, the woman you gave me. I did it, but it was her fault. Well, yeah, I did. I gave it to him, but the snake. What is, what is the catalyst for passing the buck? Shame. Well, yeah, I did it, and, and I'm ashamed of it, but it was his fault. It's got to be his fault, right? It's his fault. Now, why is this important? It shatters your nearness. I'm, I'm here with this analogy about children by the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to use it again. 
Your teenagers do not have to grow up and not want to be around you. If you're not a shame dealer. Why you got your hair cut like that? You have your head with you all day? You know, sometimes just styles. I mean, why'd you wear a mullet? Some of y'all know what I mean. Some of y'all were mullet professionals. No uglier haircut in the world than the mullet. How do you know? I had one. A long one. With a perm in the back. Hallelujah. Listen, all I got to do is go look at your pictures. Don't, 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 don't you condemn me. I know about Jerry Curl, Yolanda. Amen. <laughs> Soul glow. Amen. Hallelujah. I promise you, Kevin Cairo had an afro at one time. I promise you. <laughs> Kevin's like, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. So, so, so what goes around comes around, and your son comes in with a mullet, don't jump out there and shame. Well, you, you look like the world, like you did. You understand why I'm saying this? Because it becomes shame, and it, and it stops a child from drawing near to you, and when it stops them from drawing near to you, it stops them from drawing near to God. Because ever, whether we like it or not, I'm the image of God to my family. I'm the image of God to my children. Hallelujah. So we see the result of sin was separation. Notice verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now wait a minute. We were created to be in the presence of the Lord. And now they're hiding from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Like the new preacher was in town and he was going around knocking on doors, inviting people to church. And he went to one door and knocked. Nobody answered. He knocked again. Nobody answered. So he took out his, took out his uh, business card and wrote on the back, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Left it in the door. Next Sunday... They were counting the offering. He said, Pastor, I don't know what this is, but it's your business card. And so they brought the business card, and he had written, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And under that, it said, uh, uh, I was naked, and I hid myself. <laughs> so, so a little humor, very little. But amen. <laughs> and notice what he said. Who told you? Who told you this? Nearness turned to hiding. Fellowship turned to fear, and life turned to death. Why? Shame. Their heart was no longer fully assured. Amen. We see the result of sin was separation. Man was no longer near to God. Now notice in verse 22, it says, The Lord said, The man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is not just a statement, oh, that man's become like us. No, God's saying, God is saying this. He's saying, look what has happened. 
to the man that was created as one of us. It's compassion. It's heartache. It's not just God making a statement. He's saying, look at this. The thing that hurt God the most was the man he created to be in fellowship with him and to be near to him is now separated from him. What hurt God was that you and I were separated from him. That's what hurt God. And that's why from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, even before the world was, he had set a plan in motion to reconcile man to himself and to bring us back to nearness. Hallelujah. So it says, verse 23, The Lord sent man from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Well, why? He can't be in the position of nearness anymore. The garden was the place that God met with his man. And he drove the man out and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim's flaming sword that turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So man was removed from his place of nearness to God driven from the garden which was a place of plenty, a place of rest, to a place of labor and a place of toil. Genesis 15. I'm showing you God's side of this today. And we'll get more into our part moving forward. Genesis 15, verse 5. And he brought him forth, Abraham, and said, Look towards heaven, tell the stars if you're able to number them. He said, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, to Abraham, to Abram, for righteousness. Verse 8, and he said, Lord, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Verse 13, he said to Abram, know of a surety your seed will be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, and serve them and afflict them 400 years. Verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And now notice, this is God finding a man in the earth that he can make a covenant with. Now why? He wants to be near to man. Amen. Amen. He starts working on getting near to man. God found a man in Abram, Abraham, that would believe him and be obedient. Hallelujah. Now notice James 2. Abraham's righteousness was a reckoned righteousness. It was accounted to him for righteousness. It was reckoned to his account. His faith was placed on his account as righteousness. Now this is important because Abraham was not made righteous. His faith was accounted to him for righteousness. James 2 and 23, the Woost Bible says, and the scripture was actually and fully realized, brought into operation, which said, and Abraham believed God. And it, his act of faith, was put to his account for righteousness, and a friend 
of God he was called. So Abraham's righteousness was a reckoned righteousness. His act of faith was put to his account as righteous. Notice, he was called the friend of God. That word friend is an associate, a neighbor. So we see something that through the covenant that God made with Abraham, God was able to come nearer to man. It's important because that's his desire. That's his desire. That's why the scripture says, don't say in your heart, who shall descend into the earth to bring Christ up again from the dead? Or who shall ascend into heaven to bring Christ down from above? He said, but what saith it? What saith the scripture? The word is nigh you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. That if you shall believe in your heart and, and confess with your mouth that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. In other words, when we say God came to live in your heart, Scripture actually verifies that and says when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, God is now near to you again. And you're near to God. I am a friend of God. I am a servant of God. I'm a son of God and a friend of God. Mm. Do you see this? Look at Exodus 12 and 13. I want to show you some of these things. Exodus 12 and 13. This is when he was talking about the blood on the doorpost. And the blood shall be for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now notice Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verse 6. Exodus 24, and we'll read verse 6 through 8. Notice, and Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar... And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now notice Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 19. I'm showing you a pattern. Hebrews 9 and 19. It shows us something. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. The book and all the people. Now why is this important? Because in Genesis chapter 22 we see, we see the law of the substitute. We see the ram caught in the thicket. In Egypt, the doorposts were sprinkled with blood. Fifty days later, they reached Sinai. The blood of the covenant was sprinkled first on the altar, then the book of the covenant, then on the people. The contact's getting closer. It started on the mount with the substitute. It, it went down to the blood on the doorpost. Fifty days later, it's on the altar, it's on the book, and now it's on the people. God's getting nearer to His man. Hallelujah. Then in Exodus 25, notice, after the blood is on the people, after it's on the altar, after it's on the book, after it's on the people, notice Exodus 25 and 8. Notice what it says. 
Then God makes a statement. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, so God who is still in the tabernacle, He's still uh, 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 ministering from the mercy seat eventually when it's created. He says, but here's the thing. The, 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 the altar is sanctified, the book is sanctified, and the people have had the blood sprinkled on them. I can come and dwell among them in this tabernacle. It's getting closer. And, and, and we'll get more into this as you go. And, and then God implemented and instituted the priesthood so that He could have an actual human representative that would represent God to the people and the people to God. And every year Aaron would make atonement for the sins of the people at the mercy seat, at the mercy seat, at the mercy seat. Because God is the God of all mercy. And every year, everyone that had shame, everyone that had guilt, everyone that had sin, had an actual physical representative called Aaron the high priest that could go into the presence of God Himself and once again be near to God through the blood of the Lamb and atone for the sins of the people. But the Bible says we have a great high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities and that He entered in once into the heavenly holy of holies and has made restitution for us eternally because God wanted to be near to his people glory to God that I may dwell among them it's always been God's desire he never separated himself from man man separated himself from God notice 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 19, hallelujah, and we'll read through verse 21. To wit, or to this end, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. Not imputing, now stop right there, not imputing their trespasses. Now this is important. Do you remember reading in the Old Testament... David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Wait a minute. How do you know that? We'll study this more in this series, but I want you to see this. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant back, remember something. Sometimes we think the Ark of the Covenant, we just think a relic. We just think a piece of the furniture. The Ark represented the presence of God. When you read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, when uh, Hophni and Phinehas were desecrating the temple and there was a fight going on with the Philistines and they went out the first day and they were, they were beaten and they came and they got the ark and they took it. When they came into the camp of the Israelites, the Bible says they shouted so loud the earth shook. And that the Philistines were afraid and said, the sound of a God is in the camp. And it said they realized, wait a minute, this is the God that opened the Red Sea, right? But but here's the bad part about that, he wasn't with them. But the mere presence of that ark made them shout so loud the earth shook. And when they came back and said, your sons are dead... That was bad. But notice what Eli said. And what about the ark? They said it's been taken. He ripped his clothes. 
and fell over backwards and died. Broke his neck. He didn't get in such grief because of his sons. It was the presence of God is gone. Wasn't just a piece of furniture. The presence of God's not with us anymore. Do you see this? Hallelujah. So when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem, the Bible says he built a tent. And he appointed praisers to worship God in the beauty of holiness. 24 hours a day. But notice what happened. When God started talking to him, it said David got up and went to the tent and sat in the presence of God. He's getting closer. That's why David could say, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. In other words, he said, I know who I am and I know where I've missed it and I'm still able to enter into the presence of God. David tapped into the, into the law of grace and into the revelation of grace before thousands of years before it ever came to pass. Why? God hasn't changed. And if you approach God with an attitude of, 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 of sorrow for what you did and an attitude of wanting to change, God will meet you with mercy every time. Hallelujah. So God was in the world, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed to us as the church the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of what? Reconciliation. Telling people, you are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, please. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We beseech you. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Is that what your word says? So the father sent Jesus so mankind could once again be near to him. Our righteousness is not a reckoned righteousness. We've been made righteous. It's not just on my account. It's what I am. Amen. Amen. Listen, if somebody is incarcerated, a family member, a friend, can send money and put it on their account. But they're still not free. Right? When you got born again, righteousness was not just put on your account. And you're not free. You were made righteous. It's not just on my books. I am righteous. Amen. Now, now look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and 24. And that you put on the new man, which after God. Oh, this is important. Can you, uh, Brother Dave, can you show me that in the Amplified Bible, please, sir? Because I want you to see this. And put on the new nature, the regenerate self, created in God's image. I think that's what Scripture says. In the beginning, man was created in God's image. Now, wait a minute. You can't get around that. 
My new nature is created in God's image. This is why it's so important. And I know I've taught on this before. I've got five minutes. I know I've taught on this before. This is not you. This carries me. The real me is the regenerate self. That's created in God's image. Now look what it says. God-like. Ooh, boy, religion would have a problem with that. People say, well, who you think you are? God, uh, just like him. I fell over there saying he's God. No, I'm not. I'm God-like. I and you are the only, the only being created in the earth like God. And it's deeper than religion. It says, right, we have the right to choose. We, only we can choose our eternal destiny. We're like God. No, 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 no. He says, God-like in true righteousness. What does that mean? There's an untrue righteousness. There's a righteousness based on works. There's a righteousness based on what you do and how you act and what you say. And when you think that you're righteous just because you don't ever think a bad thought or do a bad thing or say a bad thing, you're fooling yourself. Everybody has their good days. Right? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But we are godlike in true righteousness because my righteousness is a standing. I am right with God. See, in the very beginning, the only, the, what made Adam's relationship so special was that he was right with God and had a right to be near to him. In true righteousness and true holiness. What does that mean? There's an untrue holiness. Now hear me when I say this, because I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. So that means that this true holiness, this true set-apartness, because it's on the same level as true righteousness, cannot be dictated by what the world or religion says holiness is. It's true holiness. So you have denominations that try to make holiness uh, the length of your hair, whether you cut it or not, or whether you wear makeup, or, or whether you, know, you wear pants, and when we talk about that, the women. I, I always found that was so funny that, that, that none of those legalistic rules applied to any of the men. It just applied to the women. That always bothered me. I mean, what, Right? You, you go into those denominational churches that hold to that doctrine today, and you'll see the men. They all have their in-style haircuts, and they have their trimmed beards. Some of them, some of them don't believe in beards, and they're in their nice cut suits, and there's their wife standing there looking like their grandma. Looking like mama. You don't know, is that your wife or your mama? And they say, that's holiness. No, that's ignorance gone to seed. I'm not going to say what one man said about every old barn needs a new paint every now and then. Because I don't say that. But think about it. That's bondage, not holiness. That's legalism, not holiness. 
Holiness is set-apartness for God. Ladies, you can be very stylish and be set apart for God. The Bible emphasizes modesty. Just be modest. Amen. I don't want to look like the world. I don't want to be near to God. What do you mean by that? Don't want to look like the world. Stylish? In style? Maybe you don't want to be stylish. That's up to you. That's your opinion. That's your right. But the way you cut your hair, the way you wear your hair, the color of your hair, whether you have makeup on or not, is not what's going to keep you from God. What keeps you from God is your shame. Hallelujah. True holiness will bring you near to God and bring God near to me. This year, this year is going to be a year of nearness with God. It's going to be a year of nearness with God. Hallelujah. So right now, close your eyes right now. Please. Just put your hand on your heart. Hallelujah. Just say this out loud. Father, I thank you that you have made me near to you. I thank you that our relationship is secure. It is solid. It is steadfast. Because you are sure and solid and steadfast. I love you because you first loved me. You are the author and the finisher of my faith. And I put my complete and total dependence on your love for me and your desire to be near to me in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. We'll stand up today, would you? Say it out loud as you're standing up. I'm near to God. And God's near to me. Oh, hallelujah. You know, God never, God never starts a day by not wanting to be around you. Never do you pray and he tells the angel, tell him I'm not here. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Well, he doesn't say that to me anyway. I don't, I don't know. He doesn't say it to you either. Hallelujah. God's good. Amen.